0: Oh, good morning. My name is Rick Morris. I've had the uh, pleasure of speaking here a couple of times. They asked me to come back again on this week, which is between two series. And so I have the opportunity to teach on whatever I want. And so I thought uh, in light of that, it might be good to talk about something that has some relevance with the holiday that we just experienced and also kind of ties in with the things that Cale was talking about last week. So speaking of that holiday, happy belated Thanksgiving. Thank you. And um, <laughs> uh, I actually looked up a dictionary definition. Thanksgiving, according to the dictionary, is a day of feasting to celebrate the harvest and other blessings of the past year. It's a time to give thanks for good things and positive circumstances that have come our way. That, that's a good thing. Um, and I have actually done a lot of thinking about thankfulness uh, over the last few weeks. And it crossed my mind that there are several different types, several different layers of thankfulness. There is kind of a basic thankfulness where people just feel a, a warm feeling of appreciation when something good happens. It could be something small, like Somebody who held a door for you said or did something nice. It could be something more major like you got the scholarship You got the job the promotion. You got a clean bill of health For whatever reason though something good has happened and you feel appreciative of that That's good There's another kind That's a little less common, I think, that goes deeper. It looks beyond the circumstance to the source. And for those of us here that have been around a few months ago, we went through the book of Luke together, you'll probably remember there was an example of that in Luke 17, uh, where Christ was on his way to Jerusalem and on the way he was met by 10 guys who had leprosy. and They stood at a distance and they cried out to him for mercy. They had this awful disease, not only because of the physical aspects, but the social aspects um, of where they would be isolated from the community because it was contagious. And they've heard that Christ can heal, and they're begging him to do that. Interestingly, he doesn't heal them right away. He says, go show yourselves to the priest, which is an odd response Because the priest was the one who could actually confirm that a healing had occurred. If somebody felt they'd been healed, they'd go to the priest. He would go down the checklist and confirm whether it was legitimate or not. But they hadn't been healed yet. Actually, he was asking them to take a step of faith. And so they do it. They are walking on their way to the priest and on the way they are healed. And for nine of them, actually for all 10 of them, they're thrilled about that circumstance. For nine of those 10, that was good enough. They're happy for the improved circumstance. They appreciate it and they go on their way. Only one of those 10 went deeper and decided it was appropriate to go back, fall at Christ's feet and offer loud praises and thanksgiving to God for the gift that he'd received. He was grateful for the gift, but he looked beyond it to the source and it's not hard to argue that that's an appropriate response when we get a significant blessing from God. God is self-existent, all-powerful. He needs nothing from us. There's nothing we can provide him that will fulfill some sort of deficiency on his part but in spite of that he loves us and he gives to us freely. The scripture says literally everything we have comes from him including our abilities and talents and every breath we take and the next beat of our heart, it all comes from him. And so, in light of that, it's appropriate to be thankful for what he gives, but also to look beyond the gift to the source and be grateful to him for that. So, that's a major takeaway of Luke 17. And it's also a good Thanksgiving message. Emulate the one in ten who had heartfelt gratitude to God. Happy Thanksgiving but I wanna go a little bit deeper than that. Um, I wanna ask the question that we don't always say out loud. It's appropriate to be thankful to God when the circumstances are great. What about when they're not so great? Holidays are like a, a joyful occasion for some people and they're especially hard for others if you've lost your job or a spouse or your health And while others are celebrating the bounty of the year, your harvest has been meager, you're wondering how you're gonna pay your bills. Or there's an empty chair at the table where a loved one used to sit, or you got a message from the doctor that you hoped you'd never hear. Thankful heart is appropriate when circumstances are good, but what about when that's not the case? And the scripture says, Christ says, that hardship is assured. He tells his followers, in this fallen world, not you might, you will have tribulation. It's guaranteed. So what do we do? Some of us here have been through tremendous periods of loss, even in the last year. And I will say we're blessed to live in a time and place where there are so many sources of help available. Doctors, counselors, folks who can provide physical help, And all of those things we should be thankful for. God can and does use those things to bring real healing. They should be on the list of the things that we're grateful for. But beyond that, the scripture says that it's possible to have a life that's characterized by gratitude and peace and contentment regardless of the circumstances, not at the mercy of them. Paul, the Apostle Paul, said he had learned to be content in all circumstances, whether he was full or hungry, whether he had abundance or suffered needs. If you read about Paul's life, you realize that he'd gone, he had, goes through more circumstances in a year, tough times, than most of us will experience in a lifetime. And he says he's content through all of them. How do you get there? Could you say with Paul that you're content in all circumstances? I, I honestly can't. If you can, you probably should come up and take the mic. Um, I would like to look at some of the things that Paul says that help people to get to that point. I can't think of a better place to go than the book of Philippians. And we're going to go there. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn to chapter four. Paul is winding up a letter that he's written to the believers in Christ at the church in Philippi. They are not in good circumstances. They've been suffering under persecution. They're in danger of physical harm and also potential loss. So it's not a good time for them. And Paul is not writing from the Bahamas. He's writing from prison. He's there for his faith. And it's not clear how, what the outcome of that imprisonment's gonna be. So it's not a great time for him circumstantially either. And in spite of that, Paul's letter to the Philippians is referred to as the epistle of joy. Epistle means letter. It's, it's the letter of joy in spite of all of that. Paul uses the words for joy and rejoicing 16 times in the 104 verses that comprise Philippians. And for those of you that are doing math in your head, congratulations, you're a geek like me. That's one in every 6.5 verses. Yes, I did the math twice. That's a lot. In spite of those circumstances, he has every reason to be discontent. If I were in prison, I would be writing a letter asking you to pray for me. He's praying for them and offering encouragement to them. And he wraps up his letter this way. Let's pick it up in verse 4. He says, in spite of all that, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. The peace of God—that seems to be the goal, isn't it? He's saying, all of these things. If you do these things, you will have God's peace. It will guard your hearts and minds. That's what we want. What is God's peace? Well, too bad. Paul says it's beyond human comprehension, so oh well, but we can at least attempt a definition. Here's, here's one to try on. The peace of God is the deep-seated sense of assurance that comes from truly believing that God loves you personally, that he's able to meet your needs, and that he will, both now and forever. So it's assurance down from the center of our being outward that God can and will meet our needs always. That's God's peace. That's what he says we're, we're going for. There's another passage that helps with this. Christ also talks about God's peace. And it's also in an unfortunate set of circumstances. He's writing to his disciples. It's shortly before the crucifixion. He has just told them that one of them's going to betray him, that he's leaving, but where he's going, they can't follow. And that it's going to get so bad in a few hours that Peter's going to deny him three times. They'd left everything <laughs> to follow him for three years. That's all they've known. And he's leaving and they can't come. They're obviously distraught. And in that context, he tells them, here we are in John 14:1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Okay, how do we do that? Well, he tells them, believe in God, also believe in me. And then a few verses later, he tells them about peace. He says, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So he draws a distinction. Don't let your heart be troubled, says that again. And then he says, nor let it be fearful. Not the usual peace, but Christ's own peace. His peace is different than the peace that's offered by the world. One commentator put it this way. He said, for the Greeks, peace was essentially something viewed in the negative. It was only possible when bad things weren't happening. It was only possible, for example, in the absence of war. I feel peace when things are going my way. When they're not going my way, then my choices are either to improve my circumstances so the feeling of peace returns, or learn to live with the anxiety or somehow find a way to anesthetize myself so that I can numb the effects of it. But the peace of Christ, Christ's peace is different. His peace is not dependent on circumstances. What is it dependent on? It's dependent on him. What does he say? The next thing he says after don't let your heart be troubled is believe in God, also believe in me. So for those of us who've put our faith in Christ, the next step to experiencing God's peace is simple, or at least it sounds like it, believe Him. Learn to place your faith in Him, trust Him, and live a life that's consistent with what He says is already true. How hard could that be? If we really did that, you know, if, if we really, from the core of our being, believed in him, trusted him. Our hearts would never be troubled. We know he's got this, whatever the circumstance is. The problem is that doesn't always come naturally. Real faith, faith that results in the peace of God, needs to grow, it's never static. It grows or diminishes based to a large degree on how we pursue it. It it didn't come naturally for the disciples who were with him face to face, and it's a challenge for us too who haven't seen him with our own eyes, at least not yet. And that's why, and this is a spoiler alert, we're going back to Philippians 4 and what he's going to say, and really the biggest takeaway of this morning, I think, is that we need to practice. Paul says we need to practice what God instructs us to pursue, the things that lead to peace. Some of us here play musical instruments. Some of us here do sports. Or we're involved in various kinds of artwork or other kinds of activities that require acquiring a certain set of skills. And those who do that know those skills often don't come naturally. They require focus and training and repetition and practice to develop until that which at first seemed unnatural. Unnatural eventually becomes natural. We practice in order to improve at something. And Paul gives examples of the kinds of things that we need to practice that lead to God's peace. And here's a warning. It's not like we have to scale some mountaintop or decode the secret message to find the the missing piece that we have never found in life. All of these things he he brings up are things that we've known about from the earliest days of our Christian life, I believe, those who know Christ. So much so that I'm afraid it's going to be like, for example, he's going to bring up prayer. Ah, oh, prayer, of course. Everybody knows they're going to pray. I know that. Check. Tell me something I don't know. Do you? The litmus test, if we really know these things that he's talking about, is can we say, like him, I've learned to be content in all circumstances. I'm not there yet. And if you're not, then... He's got something to say to us, so let's listen. Pick it up again in Philippians 4, verse 4, the, verse we've, the first verse we read. It's short, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. There's actually a lot of content there. Rejoice, that verb is in the present active. It means continuously rejoice. It's not a once and done, like rejoice, yay. Okay, next, it's, he's saying continuously rejoice meaning express joy from the inside out. And then he says, always. And in case we haven't picked it up yet, he says, again, I say, continually rejoice. He says it three times. It's a repeated command. When you see something repeated in scripture, it means it's especially important. And it's important to Paul that they rejoice always, at all times, not just when things are okay. It's important also, I think, to understand what he's not saying in order to understand what he is saying. Otherwise, we aim at the wrong target and then we're discouraged when it doesn't happen. He's not saying deny there's problems, be happy all the time, never experience sadness or grief, you know, don't worry, be happy. He's not saying that. Biblical heroes had plenty of hardships, especially Paul and Christ. They both experienced sorrow. They both experienced grief. It doesn't say that Christ was happy on the cross. It says he endured the cross, despising the shame because he was looking beyond it for the joy that was set before him. Paul, when he addresses believers who've lost loved ones, doesn't say, don't grieve, don't let that lip quiver. He doesn't say, don't grieve. He says, don't, he doesn't want them to grieve as those without God who have no hope. If there's no God, somebody's just lost. They've fallen into the chasm. They're gone. It's a tragedy. There's nothing further to say. He's saying, go ahead and grieve, but grieve as those with hope. And then he goes on to remind them of their eternal destiny in heaven. And so, summing this up, notice that verse doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances always. It says rejoice in the Lord always. It's not that we deny that problems exist. It's that we have someone greater who will walk through them with us, who's got this, who we can face them with and overcome them. He's in control of the situation. He loves us. He will walk through it with us, and it won't be for nothing. It may not be the outcome we'd hoped, but it is the outcome that will bring. We're promised this in Romans 8, It'll bring good in our lives and often in the lives of others as well. And we can rejoice in that regardless of whether the circumstances are good or bad. And basically what he's saying is don't focus on anything other than the source. And that, frankly, is going to be the same point he makes in all of these things that we're still about to look at. Like, for example, look at the next one, the next verse, be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication, supplication is like a humble appeal, a request, not a demand. With, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, that's important, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I'm not gonna dwell on this one because Cale did a great job talking about anxiety last week. But do notice Don't be anxious is not a request. It's a command. He's not saying never feel concern. He himself talks in other places about concerns that he felt. But there's a difference between concern and anxiety. Anxiety is when you take concern and you build a house on top of it and you move in and you live there and you don't go anywhere else. Anxiety is a common response in times of hardship. And frankly, if there is no God, and this is all there is, And it's just chance and survival of the fittest. There's a lot to be anxious about. That's something to think about. But for Christians who have taken their stand with Christ, though we need to approach this with grace because we struggle with it, we also need to recognize it for what it is. Anxiety is basic unbelief that God is either big enough or powerful enough or knowledgeable enough, loving enough to care for us. So Paul and Christ say, don't be anxious. Being anxious is basically when Christ says, uh, don't let your heart be troubled, believe in God, saying, "I, I don't. They're saying, don't be anxious, but instead replace that anxiety, replace fretting with other things. For example, prayer, he says here, open communication with God, being honest with him about our requests and concerns not just to do anxiety with our heads bowed and and a gripe fest, but he says with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for what? I've got a problem, that's why I'm praying. Thanksgiving because we can look to him as the source and based on his character and his attributes and his track record and how he's always been with us through everything, we can trust him to get us through this situation as well. I can thank him in advance because I know that he'll care for me in this situation just like he has in the past. When I choose to thank God in advance and mean it, it's a sign that I believe in him. It's a step of faith, sort of like telling the folks who have leprosy to go visit the priest. It's a step of faith, an opportunity to trust him with the outcome. And it causes faith to grow. So he says, rejoice, pray without ceasing in everything, give thanks. And he says that in multiple places. Focus on the source. And here's another way to focus on the source. Starting in verse eight, he says, finally, brethren, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever is right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence in anything worthy of praise, he says, dwell on these things. It's one of several commands in scripture, to be a good steward of the precious gift of the mind that God gave you. He's saying, focus it on the source. There's a saying in in computer science, it's garbage in, garbage out. It means for a program or an app, the output of your program is going to be dependent to a large degree on the input. If your input is crummy, the output is going to be crummy. So it's important what goes into it. Here's another example. You have a puppy, he's cute. You love him, you want him to grow to full maturity to be an adult healthy dog, you have a choice. Do you feed him organic, nutrient rich dog food? Or do you feed him Cheetos? And if you have to think about the answer to that question, please don't get a dog. (laughs) Paul says you have a mind. What you feed your mind matters. And this is another repeated point. Elsewhere, he says, set your mind on the things above, not the things of earth. In still another place, he says, the mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the spirit is life and peace. He's saying, what you focus your mind on has a major influence on your life. So he's saying, set it on the things above. That's the thing, things of God. And at the risk of being repetitive, he's saying, focus on the source, his His word, the Bible, the truths, his promises, his character, his track record, the things of eternal value, especially Christ's work on the cross. He's saying those things are nutrient rich food for your mind, a mind that's focused on those things helps faith to thrive and leads to life and peace. As opposed to the things of earth, which is the opposite, that which is false, dishonorable, unjust, impure, There's a a whole gross list of those things in Colossians 3 and elsewhere. Immorality, greed, anger, wrath, malice, slander, speech that tears down rather than builds up. Our culture sometimes has turned those things into an art form. But when you think about it, those things actually, a lot of them result from focusing on the circumstances. Greed is caused by focusing on what I don't have, that I want. Jealousy is caused by focusing on what someone else has that I don't have. Anxiety is, comes from focusing on the circumstance and not, not trusting God to see us through it. And Paul says all of those things are poison for the, like cancer for the mind, that they're destructive. That they lead, he says, to spiritual death. So don't focus on those things, focus on the source, focus on the things of God. Let me add one more thing. There's a lot of things in life that aren't in either camp. They're not in the good camp, the bad camp, they're just neutral. You know, they're just there. Things that various kinds of entertainment, social media, video games, music, and I'm not talking about the X-rated kind, I'm just talking about the kind that's just there. And those things are fine in moderation. Entertainment adds some enjoyment to life, that's great, in their place, but Spending an exorbitant amount of time on those things can consume your time and, and your thought life in a way that's unhealthy. A lot of them are basically Cheetos. And I, I have no moral problem with Cheetos. I believe Cheetos are fine. Long live Cheetos. I actually like Cheetos. But I don't want a heaping plate of them for breakfast, life, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> That's going to lead to problems because they're out of proportion. Spending an exorbitant amount of time on things that in the end don't matter can result in a mind that otherwise would have thrived to be squandered on that which has little value. It's not really cancer. It's more like a benign tumor. It's just kind of there. It's consuming resources in our life that could be better used somewhere else. And it can grow. And when it does, it can crowd out other things that are vital. And we don't want God to be crowded out of our lives. That's why Cale was reading that verse last week that said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That needs to be the priority. That's what we're going for. Set your mind on the source. Finally, he wraps it up this way. And here's where the spoiler alert comes in, verse nine. This is a summary statement. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and those things include what he has just said. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Beyond practicing it all, he also says, look for examples. The chapter before, he says, follow my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. Practice these things. These things include... All that we just talked about, and we'll put a summary list here up on the screen. Maintaining a joyful heart. Replacing anxiety with regular thoughtful prayer. Proactively focusing your mind on God and his priorities. And then watching for those who, whose lives display those things, following their example and practicing those things ourselves. It's not that we don't know these things. It's that we need the tenacity to pursue them master them, until that which doesn't come naturally eventually becomes natural. And the point is not, are we perfect at that yet? Paul says he wasn't perfect. I'm certainly not either. It was ironic to me how much anxiety I had in my life preparing a teaching where one of the major points was don't be anxious. This has been kind of a humbling week. But that's why we practice, right? We practice in order to improve at something. God is the source of a life of peace and joy and gratitude. So we practice putting God first, seeking him and his kingdom first. That's what leads to a life of joy and peace. I wanna leave with an example briefly, that happened in our own lives. It's not often that, you you know, Paul says, just watch me and do what I do. And he's the one that had contentment. You don't see too many people like that. We had the opportunity in our family long ago to see that displayed firsthand. Uh, And I want to tell you about that to end today. Um, I need to tell a little story before that because it, it, comes to play in, in the actual, actual experience we had. My family, long before I met my wife, this story is about her father, my father-in-law. Long before I met her, their family went to a Bible conference and they heard a teacher tell a story that the gist of it was like this. The guy hears a knock at the door, he opens the door, there's a man standing there with a $100 bill. And he says, I wanna give you this. What's the catch? No catch, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm just generous here. Well, he feels weird about it, but he takes it, wonder if it's counterfeit. It's not. This is a good day, a day to be thankful. But oddly, the next day at the same time, the same thing happens. Knock on the door, open it up. There's the guy holding another $100 bill. Just want you to take this. Well, he takes it a little more quickly this time. And then it happens again, a third day and a fourth to the point where at that time of the day, he's standing at the door waiting and sure enough, here comes the guy down the hall, down the street, comes up, knocks on the door, another hundred dollar bill. Until one day, as he's standing there watching, he comes down the sidewalk, walks past his house to the neighbor's house, knocks on that door, gives them hundred dollars. Well, that's troubling, but mistakes happen. <laughs> However. The next day, the same thing happens right by his house to the neighbor's door. And this time he opens the screen and goes, hey, where's my $100? And you get the moral of the story, right? It's it's the difference between gratitude versus entitlement, an attitude of entitlement when a a gift is given. That story comes to play in what happened in our lives. In 1983, the year my wife and I were married, my father-in-law was having health problems. It started with rib pain and then it spread to other areas like his knees and eventually his back. And due to the back pain, he was admitted admitted to the hospital eventually for testing and treatment. And then two days before Thanksgiving, he got diagnosed with a form of cancer called multiple myeloma. Back then that was a death sentence. Even today, though it's treatable now with a much better prognosis than it had back then, it is still not curable. And in those days, that news was devastating. He spent Thanksgiving in the hospital that year. He was there for about six weeks. He got home before Christmas, but he came home with a walker, and by that time, he could barely stand. But he was a firm believer in Christ, and this is where the story comes in. After the diagnosis, he told his wife We've had plenty of $100 days. We're not gonna complain about this one. Which was amazing, an amazing attitude to have. Myeloma is an awful disease. It is a cancer of the blood and it affects the immune system. And it can be painful and debilitating. In that day, there were very few treatments available and without effective treatment, it does awful things. And one of the worst is it deteriorates the bones and makes them moth-eaten and brittle. And it often leads to other life-threatening conditions like kidney failure and severe infection. Life expectancy back then for somebody with myeloma was two to three years. He lived eight. And in that eight years, he was hospitalized about 20 times. There were surgeries, there were treatments, there was pain, several brushes with death. And all through it, the constant realization that time was short. He lost six inches of height as his vertebrae collapsed. They put rods in his legs to prolong his ability to walk. He suffered multiple broken bones, including two broken arms. One broke one day when he was putting on a jacket. The other one just broke with no apparent cause other than the disease had deteriorated it. But his wife noted that during that time, he hardly ever complained. Instead, and I'm quoting here, she said he seemed to possess a great sense of joy in spite of all of that. He beat the odds for longevity. But in 1991, his health began to deteriorate rapidly. Here's an excerpt from my mother-in-law's journal back then. She said, in August, he became virtually bedridden. I cared for him at home with the help of part-time volunteers for the next four months. Most of our family came home for Thanksgiving that year and I have a vivid memory of my husband at the table in a wheelchair with a baseball cap on his bald head. That was from the treatment. Both broken arms in braces. She she had to feed him Thanksgiving dinner that year because of that. But the other thing she expressed having a vivid memory of was watching him at the table as, quote, he expressed overflowing gratitude to the Lord for all the wonderful blessings we'd enjoy, we'd enjoyed. My wife and I were there for that. We remember that. It was amazing. Physically, he was just a shadow of who he used to be, but his heart was vibrant. There was just this full sense of joy as he... Radiated gratitude in his prayers of thanksgiving to God in spite of the circumstances. I've never seen anything like it. It amazed all of us. A few weeks later, he went to be with the Lord, and now he's whole again. He was not a superhero, he was a regular person just like you and me. But God was not on the periphery of his life. God wasn't an afterthought. God was the source. He deeply believed in Christ. And it's just like Paul said, God gave him what he needed to have joy, even in the midst of incredibly difficult circumstances. And God saw him through to heaven. Listen, as Christians, we have many reasons to be grateful. (sighs) But the one that is the greatest of all is found in Luke 10, 20, when the disciples in the midst of a wonderful time of circumstances, they'd just come back from a missionary trip and God had used them powerfully in healing and miracles. And they said to to Christ, Lord, even the spirits are subject to us in your name. And he was rejoicing with them. He's happy with them. But then he, he tells them this. He says, don't rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. In the end, everything here is is going to be gone. That's what matters. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. My father-in-law's was. There's a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's what makes possible the joy and gratitude that Paul describes even in the face of persecution and hardship and imprisonment. And it's what we saw flowing from my father-in-law 31 years ago, it's the peace of God. Not the peace the world gives, but the peace of God. And it's only possible when God is on the throne of your life, that's the starting point. You cannot have the peace of God without the God of peace. Christ told his followers that he was the way, the only way to the God of peace because of what he'd done up to that point, lived a perfect life without sin of his own to pay for, and then what he was about to do, offer that perfect life on the cross as payment for our sins so that we wouldn't need to pay for it ourselves and then for anyone who who chooses to accept that, offer us forgiveness and the opportunity to become adopted into God's family as his children. And he offers that freely without charge to anyone who would confess their need for it and request it. If you're a Christian, continually rejoice in that, always. If you're not, but you sense your need for Christ and you'd like to receive the gift that he offers, then pray with me. In your own words, God's not interested in your eloquence. He's interested in the state of your heart. God looks at the heart. If you'd like to meet him, pray with me now in your own words, something like this. Lord, I realize I've fallen short. I've sinned. I have not lived the life that you wanted me to live and I need forgiveness. And I understand that Christ died on the cross for me to offer that forgiveness, to pay for my sins himself so that I wouldn't have to. And I would like to receive that gift. I ask that it would apply to me. I ask for your forgiveness. I ask that you would come into my life and be on the throne of my life and be my Savior and Lord. Lord, for those of us who do know you, thank you that you always answer that prayer you desire for everyone to come to know you. Thank you that you know us, those who have taken that step. Thank you that our, gosh, thank you that our, our names are recorded in heaven. Thank you for the peace you offer. and and the chance to live a life even now where we can overcome our circumstances and be content regardless of whether they're good or bad. Thank you so much for loving us so much. In Jesus' name, amen.